Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from Columbia Alumni Association. We often like to talk about how our alumni reach grand heights in their successes and go far in their contributions to society. Not many have gone quite as far as business school alum Timothy Copra. That is, as far as outer space. Timothy Copra is a NASA astronaut with not one, but two space trips on his resume. Copra has lived on the International Space Station, or the ISS, for a total of 244 days, doing three spacewalks and Instagramming with captions like hashtag cities from space and goodnight from at the space station. Once he got back to Earth, he visited Columbia University to speak with students about engineering, teamwork, and what he looks for in an aspiring astronaut. Before he added the ISS to his list, Copra had a distinguished career as an Army aviator, engineer, and test pilot. He credits his studies with helping him to connect the dots between the engineering world and the operational world, leading him to NASA. I was accepted as an astronaut in 2000 and uh, began training you know, our, kind of our basic training for astronauts. At the time, it was learning how to fly the shuttle, all the systems on board, the brand new space station that we were building at the time. And then in uh, 2003, we had the Columbia incident over most of East Texas, which was a pretty traumatic event for everybody, but especially those at Johnson Space Center and Kennedy Space Center. And from that, you really start to recognize in a very visceral and emotional way how important it is that you do a really good job both with the design and with the operation of the vehicles that you work with. Uh, So uh, for me, that's probably a seminal moment in terms of anchoring how I think about human spaceflight because it turns out that human spaceflight is really hard. Um, Maybe you don't always get that. You guys understand it, but I think maybe the public may not understand it because they see some really cool movies and they hear some Public figures talk about how, how easy it is to send people into space, but I can tell you that it's actually really, really difficult, and it's challenging across the, the whole spectrum of, of different aspects, from the engineering standpoint, from the construction of the hardware, from the maintenance of that hardware, and from the, uh, the training and the, of the crew that has to operate all that hardware on board. And it all has to come together, right? All has to be a nice, tight package so that we can do our job and also uh, be able to get up there and get back safely. And it sort of emphasizes the fact that, uh, that space, space flight, human space flight, is really a team sport. We have six crew members in space, but we can't operate space station by ourselves. We really need that ground team, and it's a really expansive ground team to help get the job done. We have a mission control, and you probably have seen pictures and images of, of mission control before. All the people at their consoles that are in charge of their particular discipline. But behind each one of those people is another group of engineers and really smart folks that are helping us solve problems, especially when they happen in real time. And I think it's one thing that NASA does particularly well. Getting ready to go into space takes a lot of preparation. Some astronauts train for up to two years. 
Here, Koper describes the training process for flying the Russian spacecraft in preparing for landing. We work with our international partners. The International Space Station is truly that. It's an international laboratory in space. And so our training is in Japan, Canada, Europe, primarily Germany, and in Russia. We practice and are tested inside a, a, a centrifuge. Um, and so we have two little buttons on this hand controller, and the two little buttons control the attitude of the vehicle in 15 degree increments. And so even though it's basically a ball, there's lift on this ball, depending on how you orient the vehicle. And so depending on uh, how much we miss the precise entry point, we're going to have a different kind of approach. And so we're using these two little buttons in this very arcane way to orient the vehicle and then fly the vehicle down. So in my particular case, I was the left seat in this little capsule called a Soyuz, the Russian vehicle. And the left seat is essentially the co-pilot in the vehicle. And so the co-pilot is trained to the same extent as the center seat, who's the, the Russian Soyuz cosmonaut and commander of that vehicle. With training completed, Copra and his crewmates were ready to begin their mission. Since the United States space facilities do not have the capacity to send humans into space, NASA sends its astronauts to Kazakhstan, where they join their Russian counterparts for the mission. We partner with our Russian counterparts to be a crew member on a Soyuz, and we launch out of the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. In fact, we launch from the same launch platform that Yuri Gagarin did back in 1961, so there's lots of history there. When you launch on that vehicle, you're strapped into this really, really small capsule. It is just big enough. It's really, really small. And you're inside this, this seat liner. And uh, the seat liner is designed to protect you when you come back and you land on the other end once we spend our time in space. Because we don't land in the water, we land on land. And so there's several different means that we have to protect us when we come back. 15 December of this last year, we launched out of uh, Baikonur. You have three stages that gets you to space. You have four strap-on boosters that are the first stage. They're burned up in about uh, two minutes. And nowadays, what we do is we use uh, a different scheme so that we get to space station in four orbits. So every orbit's about an hour and a half. So six hours later, we're docking on the space station, which is pretty incredible. You wake up in Baikonur and you go to bed on, on the International Space Station. Cobra's crew of three arrived at the ISS on December 15, joining another crew of three who had arrived in September. Together, the six made up Expedition 46. Within six days of arriving, Cobra went on his first spacewalk of the expedition. It was a smooth stroll in zero gravity. His second spacewalk, however, was a little more eventful. We, uh, we had learned that there was a sequential shunt unit, a big box about yay big, that's essentially a big circuit breaker that had failed on the very, very end of Space Station. And Tim Peake and I were scheduled to go out and fix that. About the same time that I finished up with that task, I looked up in my, the visor of my, my helmet and I had this big ball of water. We're not supposed to have water inside your spacesuit. That's bad. Water is strange in space because you don't have the gravitational effect and the surface tension of the water keeps it together. 
And so when it's on your skin, it's kind of like the blob, right? It's kind of just wrote, it just kind of crawls over you. So if you had water on your face, it's going to slowly work its way over to your mouth and nose. And you could end up with a major problem with just a very, very small amount of water. The water in Copra's helmet alarmed Mission Control because of an incident two years before when an Italian astronaut's helmet filled with 1.5 liters of water. Thankfully, NASA had installed a unique fix. So what we did was we designed uh, this absorbent pad that goes in the back of the helmet. If you get water there, it's really just a diaper, frankly, a very expensive diaper, space diaper. And then uh, we have a snorkel or a big straw about right here so that even if you had water on your face, you could reach down and you could breathe through the place inside the spacesuit that doesn't have any water. So aside from spacewalks, what else do astronauts do on the ISS? You know what we do in space? We are busy every day. We get up about 6 o'clock in the morning and we have a daily planning conference at 7.30 and we work all day until the night planning conference at 7.30. So we're scheduled for about six hours of science. On top of that, we have the two and a half hours of working out and then all the things you just do to live, right? Like clean up and eat. That's a lot of work. So what about sleeping in space? Copra says you sleep in a compartment the size of a refrigerator, but that's not the coolest part. You have these high-energy particles that are going through space station, and so when you close your eyes at night, you can see the high-energy particles going through your optic nerve, which is a little bit disconcerting, right? Sure, that's good for you. What's even weirder is the first time I flew, I had to change out and sleep in a temporary location. And so I changed my body orientation when I was sleeping inside this logistics module and the direction of those little shoots of light were different. Expedition 46 kept busy with repairs, mechanical tasks, and research. Actually, the purpose of, of Space Station is not to go do spacewalks and to launch and to fly our vehicle. It's really about this world-class laboratory that we have going around our planet every 90 minutes, about 250 miles up. A lot of fundamental aspects of science are um, come to light or come out when you can look at it in a zero-gravity environment. You know, a lot of the science we do on board, uh, sometimes we're just uh, a very passive observer. Sometimes we're like a lab technician getting it set up. And then other times we are, we're like a lab rat. We are the experiment. Probably my favorite experiments on board though, were the ones that are trying to help us understand the effects of gravity on the human body. So we had an ultrasound device on board. We're doing ultrasounds with a ground guide uh, who's working with us on the ground that are helping us understand the effects of zero gravity on our muscles, our cardiovascular system, on our eyes. Astronauts tend to lose bone density and muscle mass while they're in space, up to 2% of bone density per month. To counteract the effects of zero gravity, the astronauts turn to a routine which may sound familiar, weightlifting. So we have uh, this weightlifting machine, which sounds a little bit ironic, you you can't lift weights in space, but uh, we have this device that pulls off two vacuum cylinders, just like lifting weights. So we do squats and deadlifts and bench presses and curls and all those kinds of weightlifting exercises and it feels exactly the same which is amazing capability to have in space 
So the astronaut's gym time helps their muscles and bones, but what about their cardiovascular capacity? We have a stationary bicycle. Doesn't really have a seat. You kind of float there and pedal, hold on to some handles. And then we have a, a treadmill, which is also kind of interesting, right? Running in space, but we put a harness on and then these bungee cords that pull us down and then use a control panel so that we can change the speed of the treadmill and then run in space. With these human body experiments and six people living on the ISS, waste becomes an issue to address. It turns out that it's really, really expensive and hard to get supplies to space station. And so if you can recycle even your pee, then that means it's less water you have to carry to space because water is like eight pounds a gallon. So you'd have to fly all that and you need a few liters of water a day to drink and for your body to work. And so by recycling that water, whatever it happens to be, that means it's less things we have to carry to space. And it's also important because someday we're going to go beyond low Earth orbit. We're going to go to the Mars, I think, uh, sometime in our lifetime. I actually hope we go to the moon first. But when we take these long trips, we're going to have to be even more conscious about how we recycle all those different things so that we can minimize weight, make it more reliable, and be able to live off the land eventually. Well, it sounds like being an astronaut has its pros and cons. But perhaps the best part of all about going into space is having a new view of our home planet. So we spent 186 days on, uh, on space station, which was an amazing thing. We, we don't have an incredible amount of free time while we're on board. Uh, but what free time you do have, I think all of us turn into real photo bugs because there's no better canvas for a photograph than planet Earth. But one time we had this one pass and I happened to have the window and we're going across the United States and I was trying to get a picture of uh, Nashville because I have some uh, family there. And I wasn't really paying attention to where we were going to end up. And pretty soon, because we're going at about five miles a second, we're over the Bahamas. I mean, it, no kidding, took my breath away. It was just unbelievably beautiful. And there are lots of places on the planet like that that will just blow you away because it just it is so amazingly beautiful. You know, some of the uh, other aspects that are pretty amazing that will blow you away are the auroras. And it turned out the... Uh, the Aurora Australis was much more active than uh, Aurora Borealis while we were on board. And uh, my task when I was commander on Expedition 47, I'd kind of put the ship to bed at night and I'd turn out the lights and I'd close the shutters on the cupola, which is this really cool set of windows with six in a circle and one big one in the center. And uh, I was floating over to the cupola to close the shutters and it's like this this green light was on. It's like, who left the green light on? Well, it happened that we were going through a band of one of the auroras and we were engulfed in green. It just pretty amazing. The world looks different from 250 miles up and Copra felt like he had gained a new perspective on how connected we all are down here. You have no idea how grateful I am to have gone through that. But I think perhaps, you know, the, from the perspective of seeing uh, planet Earth, you really begin to recognize how interconnected we are. You know, like for example, you can see, like there's like one picture up here, which I really love. It's all these fishing boats in, uh, in Southeast Asia. I mean, it's like thousands of these little boats, right? I mean, there's like all these communities are all surrounded about fishing, right? And you see, uh, you see ships going through the Suez Canal and the, the Panama Canal. So you can recognize how 
we're really interconnected that way. You see the contrails of planes going over the planet. Um, it's just amazing. And then also, you know, for me personally, because I have lots of friends, mainly because of going to Columbia Business School here, that are from all over the planet. And so when I fly over Mauritius, like I got a buddy who's from Mauritius, right? I didn't even know where Mauritius was until I met my buddy. I mean, all across the globe, you really get this real physical sense of how connected it is, how big it is. And that's, a, that's not really something you're going to get from a book. After six months, Copra and his team had to pack up and get ready for the trip back to Earth. Get ready for Copra's description. It sounds every bit as crazy as it looks in the movies. Once we were ready to come home, we get back in our Soyuz and uh, close the hatch and undock and, and get ready to go home. And it turns out that, uh, that the ride coming home is about as violent as you could get. You really are thrown around so much. It's like, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you design like the amusement park ride from hell. Like you think you might die kind of amusement park ride. It's one of those. And then once you're coming down on the, the chute, uh, just a couple hundred milliseconds before impact, you have these soft landing jets that fire. But it's really a euphemism to call them soft landing jets because there's nothing soft about it. And then you smack on the ground and you hit hard enough that I think all of us spend several seconds just kind of making sure that nothing's broken. I mean, you just think there's no way to hit that hard and not get something broken. But it turns out that all of us were fine. Their search and rescue team comes in. They're there about eight minutes after we had landed, which was good because when we bounced and we rolled, I was upside down. They got there quickly, rolled us back, pulled us out, and they put us in these chairs, let us recover. Uh, we get out of our, our space suit, put on a flight suit, and then get in these Russian helicopters. And probably the most dangerous part of the whole mission is uh, going back on Russian helicopters. Within 25 hours of landing in the desert in Kazakhstan, I'm stepping off the plane in Houston, Texas, greeting my family. So pretty amazing ride. And uh, <clears throat> I recommend it uh, to everybody. What a journey. Do you still dream of being an astronaut? Well, all rocket science and engineering speak aside, Copra's parting advice to students was to develop the most important skill, just getting along with others. He said that what he looks for in a good astronaut comes down to one question. Who do you want to go camping with? So whether you're an aspiring engineer, a practicing astronaut, or even a camping aficionado, Go far and be nice. To see some of the photos described and learn more about NASA's work, visit www.nasa.gov or find Copra's Instagrams from space with the handle at astro underscore Tim. To learn more about the engineering program at Columbia University, visit engineering.columbia.edu. Thank you for listening to The Lowdown. To hear more inspiring alumni stories, head on over to thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu. This episode was produced by Shanna Crumley, the Columbia Alumni Association, and Columbia Engineering.